Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to It's Not a Crisis. I am your host, Doran Wallach. I'm an entrepreneur, a mother of two, a wife, and a 40-something trying to figure out what is happening in this decade. Why is no one talking about it? I created this podcast to help women in their late 30s and 40s to figure out what is going on in our mind, body, soul, and life. We may laugh, we may cry, we may get frustrated, but most importantly, my goal is to make this next chapter of life positive. I'm also full of my own questions and I'm here to go on this journey with you. So let's do it together. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of It's Not a Crisis. I have an amazing guest today, another amazing guest, Ada Calhoun, who uh, is the author of the book, Why We Can't Sleep, which is about Gen X. I contacted Ada months ago after reading the book and said, I have to have you on the show. I read your book in a day. It was so amazing. And it just, it spoke to me and taught me so much about who I am as a Gen Xer and made me feel not so alone with the pressures that we face and uh, the experiences that we have. And she covers every aspect of our lives. So I was Really, really honored that Ada came on today. And just to give you a little background on Ada, she is the author of the memoir, Wedding Toasts I'll Never Give, which, by the way, we talk about on the podcast, and I'm like, I gotta read that. The New York City history, St. Mark's is Dead, and the New York Times bestseller, Why We Can't Sleep, which is what we're talking about today. And just a little bit about the book. When Ada Calhoun found herself in the throes of a midlife crisis, she thought that she had no right to complain. She was married with children, a good career, and why did she feel miserable? Why did it seem that the other Gen X women were miserable too? Calhoun decided to find some answers. She looked into housing costs, HR trends, credit card debt averages, and divorce data. At every turn, she saw a pattern sandwiched between the boomers and the millennials. Gen X women were facing new problems as they entered middle age, problems that were being largely overlooked. Speaking with women across America about their experiences as a generation raised to have it all, Calhoun found that most were exhausted, terrified about money, underemployed, and overwhelmed. Instead of their issues being heard, they were told instead to lean in, take me time, or make a chore chart to get their lives and homes in order. In Why We Can't Sleep, Calhoun opens up the cultural and political context of Gen X's predicament and offers solutions for how to pull oneself out of the abyss and to keep the next generation of women from falling in. The result is reassuring, empowering, and essential reading for all middle-aged women and anyone who hopes to understand them. This is not a self-help book. She just gives advice. She quotes some amazing people. It's a wonderful, wonderful read. Everybody that is listening right now should get that book today. And after you listen today, I hope that you will feel the need to read it even more so. Actually, one thing I just wanted to mention that we didn't talk about, which I thought was so interesting, and I I would love to have a discussion about it sometime. When she was on her book tour, the pandemic started, and uh, she realized that middle-aged women were already doing most of the caregiving in this country for children and aging parents. And uh, the coronavirus sent children home and it was menacing to seniors more than anyone else. And it has put this pressure on us from keeping our parents from dying and learning to homeschool our kids and dealing with job loss or profound financial insecurity, um, just a perfect storm of pressure. And I think that this topic in general is something that we should talk about at some point. She also mentioned, and I want you to note this when you look at the book on page 223, there's an early uh, quote from authors of a book on generations about how 2020 would bring a world crisis and this generation will save us. And I think perhaps that's because a lot of us were latchkey kids. Um, we talk about that, that we're, we're a very resilient generation that is equipped to hunker down and stay calm, as Ada says. But at the same time, there are negatives to 
the way we grew up, and we touch on that too. So I hope you'll enjoy the interview. I would love to hear from all of you about it. Please send me an email. Please share the episode with your friends. Uh, again, my email is it's not a crisis at gmail. And now on to the interview with Ada. It is such an honor for me today to have Ada Calhoun here on my show. I read her book in a day and I could not put it down. It was just the first time I've read anything that felt like it was completely speaking to me. And Often I hear that about my podcast and my Instagram, which makes me feel so good because women say, thank you for, for finally having something that's talking to me and that I can relate to. Ada is not, she's not here to give advice. She's, this is not a self-help book. I just want everyone to be aware of that, but she raises facts and information and she's done an extensive amount of research on Generation X and Ada, I am just so excited about you being here. Thank you for coming on. It's not a crisis. Oh, thanks for having me, Doran. I just told Ada before we started recording that I have so many questions. I'm, my book is like covered in pink pen with notes here and there. And as I was prepping for this interview, I just, you know, was laughing at, at I was like, ooh, that makes a good meme. Ooh, this is, this is, I got to tell my mom this and blah, blah, blah. I guess where I just want to start with you is I, I read that you had said, I think I was, I was researching some interviews and somebody said, did, did it depress you to write this book? And you said, no, it actually made me feel less alone. And I, I totally understand that. And I, I'm just wondering what, what sparked you, what inspired you to write the book to begin with? Um, yeah. So it came out of a article that I was asked to write for Oprah.com. And it was, um, uh, this editor called me and I was having like the world's worst summer. I was super broke and I thought my career was over and we had a ton of credit card debt. And I, you know, I had the one kid in going to middle school, one going into college and I felt like really old and it was just a terrible time. But the good, good thing was I got that call and the editor said, basically something weird is going on with generation X. It's different for us than it was for mothers uh, or mothers and grandmothers. And, you know, do you want to do this long story? And it changed my life, that phone call. So I'm very grateful to her. Oh, wow. Yeah. It, you know, I mean, this is, this is why I have, it's not a crisis. It's, it's kind of this forgotten generation that, that, nobody is talking to. And it's so interesting because, you know, after reading your book, I, w I it further confirmed why I'm trying to do what I'm doing and, you know, why this mission is really important for me. And I love doing it. You, you mentioned in your book that Gen X is called America's middle child. Why, why is that? Yeah. I like, I like thinking of us as the Jan Brady of generations. Boomers and millennials are much bigger um, and they're much louder. So they have gotten a lot of the attention, the cultural attention in pretty much every way. And Gen X, so, and just to define terms, it's usually considered people born between around 1965 and 1980. We just have been very cast to the side. So and I think it's, it's great you're doing this for women of this age group, because I think middle-aged women historically are cast to the side and ignored and invisible. And I think if you, if you combine that with being generation X, it's this, you know, compounded invisibility. So I think anything we do to call attention to, to what we're dealing with is wonderful. It's really great. And I think that hopefully that, I don't know if you're on clubhouse yet. I keep talking about it on my show. No, I don't know oh, what that is. Oh, you have to, I, I, you have to get on there. I have to invite you on there. If I have any invites left, it's a live chat where you can kind of participate. And I'm doing a midlife show, an early midlife show on there where, where women or men can raise their hands and speak and have conversations. And I was on one yesterday that was sort of talking about how do we change the way midlife is looked at into a positive way. And the women that got on there were like, thank you for doing this because we do need to change the way we speak about it. We need to change the story in so many ways. So anyway, I get, try to find somebody to invite you on there because then I want you to come on there with me. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, when you have time. Um, <laughs> so one of the things I talk about a lot and um, that you mention a lot in the book is, is we, we, we were the generation that were told that we could have it all. While there were positives to that, I think there were a lot of negatives to that. So I'd love to hear your opinion a little bit more on on why our, you know, our parents told us that, you know, we could do everything. And I think that unfortunately that's led to a lot of 
pressure, perfectionism, and anxiety with women our age. Yeah, no, I think well, well said. So I think that, that it came from a good place, right? I think that our mothers had fought so hard to get what they got in terms of being able to be something other than a teacher um, and a nurse. And so they told their daughters, you know, you can be anything. You can be president. One woman who I interviewed for the book, she said she wanted to be a nurse. And her mother said, no, 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 you are going to be a doctor. Like there was a sense it was never going to be the sort of the lower job. It was always going to be the top job. And it, it created a lot of pressure. So, so that woman, you know, went on to have a family. She had a kid with a TBI. She had to really sort of stick around the house. Her parents didn't pay for college, wouldn't pay for these other degrees that she would have needed to go into a higher level job. She wound up not working at all. She wound up being at home and feeling this tremendous sense of guilt and failure. And that was something that I just saw in so many of the women I talked to is a sense like nothing they did was ever enough. So, you know, you think you raised this amazing family, you supported your family through this crisis, that should be enough. It didn't feel like it. And I do trace it back to this, these messages we got as kids. And, you know, I say like the Anjali ad is like the kind of, you know, clockwork orange style brainwashing campaign that was foisted on us as really, you know, saying that, that, you have to do everything. You have to do everything beautifully. And if you don't, what's wrong with you? Mm-hmm. Just out of curiosity, because I you know you mentioned your mom. How do you change that narrative with your own kids? Yeah, that's been really interesting talking to other parents about it. I think this, these next generations are different already. I just think that you know they're, it's a much more diverse generation. They're much better educated. The gender stuff is not nearly as ingrained as it was with us. I see men doing a lot more. I mean, there are these new numbers coming out of like AARP saying... of caregiving in the millennial generation is done by men. And I just, that's a total sea change. So they're already doing a lot, but I think, I think we tend to to do a lot more nurturing. So I think if you say that we, as kids were told, you can be anything, you can do anything, but we weren't given the resources to do it. That was setting us up for failure and guilt and shame. Whereas what I see in a lot of parents of this generation is almost going too far the other direction in terms of nurturing and supporting and after schooling and camping and whatever the things that the kids want or need, giving them those resources. So it just, it feels very different to me. Yeah. And, and also I feel like, you know, we're this generation of like, uh, you know, the eat, pray, love trip fantasy. <laughs> like we just always want to run away. Every time I talk to women or friends, it's like, can I just please run away? Or can we create a commune for just moms where like <laughs> we live together and there's a bar, a spa and babysitters. And like, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's, but I think part of that feeling is, is what you were just talking about. I think that we just feel, you know, so overwhelmed and, yeah. and unfortunately I don't, I don't think that we're going to change our ways until you know, those of us that are mothers until our kids are older, if you, even if you're not a mother, I think that, I think that COVID actually helped a little bit, although I find myself slipping back in now. It's like, you're getting used to this and, and, you know, kind of going back to your old ways, but it's sad how many women feel like running away often of my yeah. age range. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I was surprised by how many similar anecdotes I heard along those lines. Like for example, the pulling into the driveway and not wanting to get out of the car. Like, right. just like wanting oh, to stick there. That. that was one, you know, there's a woman in the book who I mentioned in the opening where she would like get a babysitter and just like go to the movies alone and cry. Like just people, women like finding time. And I, what's so poignant to me about that is it's a sense like she's not going to inconvenience anybody, right? She's not going to like not have her kid taken care of. She's not going to like make it a big deal, but she's going to go by herself for a minute. And like, and also what I heard in what you're saying too, is I think we really lack community. I think our mothers and grandmothers, you know, they had the church or synagogue or the coffee clutch or the, you know, they had all these different knitting circles and PTA and all this stuff that I think really helps you get through this stage of life when you have that kind of community. And a lot of women of this generation uh, are trying to do it all on our own with no help from other generations and from neighbors. And we have no time for knitting circles. Exactly. Yeah. There's there's nothing, you know, by the way, so I just moved out of New York City after 24 years and I'm, I'm living just outside the city and I'm thrilled. I actually am. I'm so, so happy. I never thought I would say that. 
but it's a different time in my life. So I'm not like going to mommy and me classes anymore and doing all the mm-hmm. stuff that I, mm-hmm. I would have been doing when my kids were younger. However, having young kids in New York City for me was the best thing ever because I didn't feel like I was only a mom. I not not that I, you know, I love being a mother, but I'm also still a person. But you just reminded me that there were many nights where I would leave my office and go sit in a bar and call my husband and be like, I am so, I'm so swamped at work. I just can't. Yeah. Like, uh, I, I'll, I'll be home later after the kids are asleep. <laughs> <laughs> and he'd be like, all right, I got it. And I just, you know, it was just like yeah, one of those weeks, you know, when the kids were little, bedtime was hard. Yeah. And I couldn't do it another night. So um, plus, you know, coming from work and not having that, that, that break. So yeah, um, I'm glad to know I'm not alone there. One other thing about this generation too, right, is that we don't have really familiar patterns of when these things happen for us. So like when we get our big job, when we have, when we find a partner, if we do, when we have kids, like it's very staggered. So I have a lot of friends my own age who have kids who are out in the workplace and other friends, same age kids who are like babies, like little teeny kids. And so I think it's, it can be, it can be disorienting um, because, you know, everybody around you is at these different kind of stages along the track. Right. Yeah. I'm discovering that. I, I, I feel a little naive because you do get stuck in your own bubble, but through my audience, I'm realizing how many women are, you know, just having children in their forties or, or don't yeah. have children at all. Um, mm-hmm. Not that I didn't know that existed, but I think when I think if my kids are, I think, you know, my daughter's 13. I, I, I couldn't even imagine having kids at this stage in my life. That's not to say that I don't support other women doing it. Uh, it just feels that so much time has passed since I, <laughs> since I was at that stage. Yeah. My son's 14 and I have a stepson who's turning 27 in a couple weeks. And then one of my good friends has two-year-old twins. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, oh my God. it's been really fun like to be over there though. Cause it's like, it's so, I, it's feels so far away for me so long ago. And then you get to leave. But- <laughs> yeah, it's great. I get to bring up a present, think out of my lap. It's really fun. I'm and dying then, to hold a baby. Like, I want to like, oh, I, want, I want a baby for like four hours to just hold. And then I want to give oh, the baby the back. Best. <laughs> yeah. When I'm when I, like in times of my life, when things are really terrible, I always go to my friends, the houses who have babies and just, yes, it's, there is something very drug-like about getting to hold a, hold a baby for a little while. I know. I wish I had more friends with babies. <laughs> I, <laughs> fortunately I don't. I actually I did a podcast the other day on um, finances at our age. So I just want to touch briefly on that. You mentioned in the book that Gen X has more debt than any other generation. Uh, why is this? Um, well, we just hit like every patch of bad luck there is to hit. So like when we graduated college, the jobs were not great. If there were any, it was like called the jobless recession. And you know when you start out lower, you stay lower. So that was part of it. And then like the housing crisis hit us as a generation worse than other generations. Everywhere along the road that we could trip, we did financially. Yeah, it's not good. And and also, you know, one thing I, I hear a lot from boomers is in, in the media is like, you know, when I was your age, I had a house, you know, and, and that was something you could do back then. You could have only one person working in the household and you could raise four kids and own your own home and own your car and have the same job for 30 years. But those days are over. Costs of housing, education, healthcare, all this stuff is way, way higher. Wages are stagnant. Jobs are less stable. So it's kind of a perfect storm. Right. And then we have these parents who, you know, feel their kids need to have everything. And so regardless, I, I, I know a lot of people, regardless, their public school system's really great. Their kids are in private school because they want to give it. And, and my kids are in private school. So, you know, I'm not knocking that. It's just another added expense mm-hmm. to, to life. That's yeah. like, you know, sending them to college in kindergarten. No, there's a lot of studies about that too, that show that this generation, and I do think it has a lot to do with how we grew up. I, you know, the boomer parents were much more hands-off. We were the latchkey kid generation. 40% of us were children of divorce. And I think all of that led people our age to feel a little bit unmoored and to want a lot more security for our kids. And that meant in a lot of cases, 
after school classes and, um, and like you mentioned the mommy and me and the, like all of these things, which do, they all cost money, but that was a sacrifice I think we were willing to make so that our kids' childhoods would be different than ours were. Meanwhile, when I was living in New York with little kids, I had, a, I knew well, none of my friends, but I knew a lot of parents that had their kids in, um, Mandarin math at two, three, and four years old. <laughs> there was a, fa- a, a real craze for that, wasn't there? I remember yeah. hearing about that. Be- so, yeah. and I would ask them why, and they said because in finance, like that's what they're using, and it's really important for them to have it. And I said, well, but what if they don't want to be in finance? <laughs> and they were like, well, you know, hopefully they choose that. But if they choose something else, you know, I'll be okay with it. I'm like, they're yeah. three. These kids are three. How do you even yeah. know who your kid's going to be? Piggybacking on what you just said, you you mentioned in the book something called the reactive attachment disorder from being the least parented generation. Can you? What is that? Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah. So I used to be a reporter for like national news stuff. And I did these various stories that were about like neglect and abuse. And basically, babies and little kids, they have to form an attachment to a caregiver. Like they, It's kind of mandatory for brain development. And if they don't get that, if they don't have that kind of security, then it can lead to a lot of issues later on. And sort of neglect and abuse throughout childhood can have all of these, these later terrible outcomes. There's this thing, if anybody's interested in trauma studies, there's this thing called ACEs, which is adverse childhood experiences. Um, You can go, you can take this little quiz and it gives you a number of how many adverse childhood experiences you had. And if you have four or more, you often wind up with this whole host of issues, physical and emotional, you know, or, or you're much more susceptible to them. So, Reactive attachment is like you you don't, if you don't form those connections, it's much harder uh, later to form attachments. And you, you know, they were lonely, like it's like a lonely generation because of, of how we grew up. And, you know, I talked to this ACEs expert and who told me that we're the least parented generation and that it, she wouldn't be surprised if, if there were studies that really aren't that I could find or that she could find where this generation is sort of singularly screwed up to use a technical term. Yeah. Yeah. And then in some ways, I also think stronger because of it too. Yeah. I think very resilient. I think we, you know, we had to, we had to make our own snacks after school and we had to keep ourselves safe. And um, and I think we should be really proud of how much we've, we've achieved. By the way, making my own snacks was eating like six Twinkies. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. I ate so much garbage. So much garbage. I was thinking back, I had like, I used to have like, um, bread with butter on it and then sugar sprinkled over it. Me too. Cinnamon sugar. And then I'd have Doritos and I had a whole thing of Twinkies and like Mm Ho-Ho's and I I would literally, (laughs) I would literally go in front of the TV. I think Mm -hmm. I mentioned this on another show, so I'm sorry to be repetitive, but I would take the TV guide. I would write down my TV lineup for until like six o'clock when my mom came home and Mm -hmm. then I would have a snack like maybe two snacks for each show. <laughs> and yeah. were, that's what I do every day after school. That was my activity. That is awesome. I mean, I think I think about how much, how many hours that is of television. Cause I, I think about it and I'm like, yeah, I definitely watched like from the time I got home to like three o'clock until, I mean, maybe I took time out for dinner, but I don't even think I did that. Cause I had like a little TV in my room, like a little black and white one. Uh-huh. You know, I think it was like probably five, like I'm thinking like 30 hours a week probably right. of like, just television, like garbage with commercials and everything. But you know, what's funny. I actually, um, it's very hard for me with my kids when I'm like, don't watch TV, blah, blah, blah. Because I learned so much from TV. Granted, TV was more innocent then, but watching shows <laughs> like, I, I, I like forget like different strokes or Webster mm-hmm. or the Cosby mm-hmm. show or all these shows had good lessons in them and, and, uh-huh. and actually pretty diverse situations for the eighties. You know, there were a lot of single dads, you know, look at who's the boss, mm-hmm. um, yep. you know, or, or, um, the, you know, the Cosby show was such a groundbreaking show at the time. And Murphy Brown. Murphy and, Brown. I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So many, so many things. So I, I, um, I actually, my husband, we talk about this all the time. I'm like, I learned a lot from TV, but, but TV is not the same right now. Yeah. But I mean, in some ways it's, in some ways it's better, like less ads and, you know, a lot more options, but yes, I I know what you mean. I'm very, and, and just also the Murphy Brown thing, I think is so interesting. There was this thing I read about how much that influenced us as women and like what we thought was possible 
when we got to be middle age, like we'd have power, we'd have friends, we'd have family, and then we'd have like a baby, even, you know, we'd get all the stuff. And then the one thing that she had that we don't have is Eldon. Do you remember like the house painter who like took care of her house? And then when she had a baby, took care of her baby. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't really watch that show that much. So I, don't, I know. <laughs> anyway, that, oh, there's a generational cry of like, where is Eldon? Where oh, is the house so painter? Funny. Exactly. Or like Claire Huxtable was this high powered attorney. And then she yeah. came home and they were always in love and kissing and doing whatever in the mm-hmm. bedroom in front of the, you know, the kids yep. knew how. And, and yet the house was perfect and there was nobody yep. cleaning it. And yeah, <laughs> exactly. somehow it got done. Yeah, it got done. <laughs> yeah. All right. And so I'm going to, this is, I'm going to touch on this subject, which by the way, I am trying desperately to find an expert for, you mentioned it in the book. So I wanted to bring it up. I'm not saying that you're an expert in this at all, but I do think it's something that isn't talked about. And that's um, women and affairs, because I mm. think that it's a silent topic. I think that we hear a lot more about men having affairs um, in this midlife crisis age, you know, that, that, that they want to, you know, call it, but you know, many women have affairs too. And I think sometimes different, maybe different reasons than men, I guess relating to our generation, why is it more common in our generation? And, you know, I also find that women, when they kind of go through this midlife transition, they start reverting back to things that they did when they were younger. Mm-hmm. And I, I loved in the book, you mentioned like smoking or traveling or going to listen to live music or going to a club or whatever that is. Why is it more prevalent now? Or is it just more talked about now? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the numbers are, but, but uh, for, as far as the like the s- secret transgressions, like I think maybe that's just it might be eternal. I'm not sure, and I think it really is just that the human condition is profoundly lonely, right? It's like always lonely, but then if you are working all the time and you have so much responsibility, any pleasure you can find, I feel like y- y- it's hard not to take it. And that was sort of something that was a recurring theme when the with women I spoke with who had had affairs was just this sense of like, that they, they didn't do very much for themselves. They didn't get maybe this kind of attention that they used to get. And so if they found that it was very hard to turn down. And they need an escape from everybody's demands. Yeah. I think it was, I think it was an escape in a sense of, of trying to find connection. And maybe it was, you know, partly the way they always say men are trying to hold on to their youth. Um, maybe that's part of it. Too. Actually, my book before this one is called um, Wedding Toast I'll Never Give. And it's a collection of essays about marriage. And there is some stuff. It's, a, it's really a lot of information about my own marriage, including this period where infidelity was kind of part of it. And I think it's, I think it should be talked about more because I just think there's so much shame in, in it. And I think that that's maybe what leads to a lot of the, the pain and suffering and divorce is because there's the shame and then you just feel more and more alone in whatever you're dealing with. Right. And I think if people could understand, you know, where it stems from or why it happened, you know, rather than feeling shame, I think that it's, it's an important subject to talk about. I, if you know anybody, I really want to have somebody on the show to talk about this because I've gotten a lot of messages from women and uh, which I think is so brave. But I think, mm-hmm. I think when we go back to talking about our generation, feeling like we have to do everything and everybody needs us all the time and we have to be everything it's kind of inevitable that some women are going to reach out to something that's just for them. That's all about them. And that has nothing else attached to it except for feeling pleasure. Right. Yeah. Maybe that's not the best place to do it, but it it happens. Right. I think experts wise, I feel like Esther Perel is kind of cornered the market on that. I can't get her. I cannot get her. I try and I try. She's a busy, I agree. She would be amazing. If anyone knows Esther, send her my way, please. I would die to have her on the show. <laughs> but maybe she has somebody under her that um, I can find yes, out about. Pro- yeah, Prada yeah. Day. Yeah. So um, in talking about motherhood again, just to go back to that, we have a lot of helicopter moms in our generation. We feel also that uh, you mentioned that we work for everyone else and parental attention has definitely changed since our parents' generation. You know, my mom, you had written this and it made me laugh because when I was younger, my brother was seven years older. So I played alone a lot. I had a couple of friends in my neighborhood, but I really did. I played, I learned to play alone. And mm-hmm. there were days where I was like, mommy, can you come play with me? And my mom would be like, I don't play games. Mommy doesn't play games. <laughs> you're, you're fine. I'll watch you from the window. And I'd be like, oh, okay. And 
And and I, I kind of get that now a little bit, you know, because some of the games that your kids want you to play with, you're like, ooh, uh, okay, <laughs> you know, you don't really want to do it. But I guess you know why were they that way? It was it that was it their parents' generation, and and what made us feel that is it, it probably goes back to what we were talking about before that makes us feel like we have to play all the time and be there all the time and cook and do and you know. I mean, I think, again, comes from a good place. I think wanting to give our kids more of our attention is noble and probably very good in most cases for the kids. There are those extreme helicopter situations. That, and I, I have some anecdotes in the book. There was one, like I remember reading some friend of mine online was like, this is a great game to play with a toddler. It's called archaeologist. You lie down on the couch and you give them a brush and they can excavate you. I'm like, this sounds like a hell, <laughs> like a torture. <laughs> So it can go too far, but I, I do think it comes from wanting to be more engaged. And anecdotally, at least, it seems like we are much closer to our kids as they're growing up than our parents were to us. But it means more work for women is the, the upshot. It means more time. And there are all these amazing studies where they say that like women who work today are spending more quality time with their kids than stay-at-home moms did in the 70s. Interesting. I always feel such guilt when my son, my son loves Pokemon. This is a phase that is not going away. And he'll be like, mommy, can you come play Pokemon with me? And I'm like, I mm-mm, I don't do Pokemon ever. I'm never doing that with you. Well, what are the rules? What are the rules of Pokemon? Know, but I'm my like, son oh. was so into Pokemon too. And actually, I think I said to a friend of mine, I was like, how, like, you can't win, right? There's no way to win. And he said, not with that attitude. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even think he wants me to play anything. He just wants me to hold those balls. And like, he's 10 years old. And I don't, I, I don't, I don't get the whole thing. And and I just, I remember when it was very little, I used to put it on my husband. I'm like, daddy does Pokemon. Mommy doesn't do Pokemon. <laughs> and he's artistic. So sometimes we draw together, but it's hard. I think like my daughter, you know, there were more things that I'd be interested in playing with her when she was younger. My son, you know, it's, it's hard to hold that, you know, interest <laughs> for a long time. But. but I mean, it's impossible. But I mean, so also it's like, why do we feel like we should like they're kids? Like, you know, I think we could take a little bit of a lesson from the past generation and be like, you know what, you can figure it, find your own Pokemon buddies. Like, you know, it doesn't have to be that we do, do everything. What we, did. we figured it out. We played alone. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I know. The other thing, um, I thought was, you know, kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit jumping because we talked about this before when we were talking about finances, but women, first of all, I think, I think our, I don't know if it's just our generation. I'd be so interested to talk to, um, I'd actually want to have a, a young millennial on my show. Cause I think that would be really interesting, but I feel that we have so much guilt, so much guilt about everything that we do. And, and maybe, that's moms in general. Cause my mom talked about how she had guilt about things, but I don't feel to the extent that we have guilt. We were raised by somewhat feminist parents who, you know, were telling us to always make our own money and, and have our own independence. And some of us didn't do that. Like I, I got married very young and I didn't, you know, I went to grad school and then I did a couple little things here and there. And then I became a mom, a stay at home mom. So I didn't really achieve that. And, and I feel tremendous guilt all the time, even as supportive as my husband is, but I feel like I'm letting down our, our age and, you know, generation. Mm -hmm. I did something wrong. Have you, have you had other women say this to you? Yeah. Almost everyone. Like I, you know, I interviewed maybe a couple hundred women for the book and I would say many, many, many of them would say to me, they would, you'd see all their accomplishments and whatever they were. And then they would say like, where did I go wrong? And it would be because they had a family, but they didn't have this corner office or they had the corner office, but they didn't have the family or they had the family and the corner office, but they were freaking out all the time or they didn't, or they were, you know, 30 pounds overweight or whatever it was. There was always something on that checklist that they hadn't done or hadn't done well enough. And I think what I hope from the book is that it's like a deprogramming of that idea that we were supposed to do all of these things because people can't do all of the things. Like at least they, you know, if, and if they do all of the things, they, there are costs to that, which usually involve being extremely tired and very stressed out and pull very thin. So I just think we need to give ourselves permission to only do 
10 amazing things and not 50 amazing things. Mm-hmm. Definitely. We have to change that. I, I, I mean, the, the anxiety and the breakdowns are going to get worse if we don't get off this path. So mm-hmm. I, I think that's, that's great advice. Now I want to talk a little bit about single and childless Gen Xers. For those that may not have well, I, I think there are two sides of this. I think there are women who just chose to be single and childless, which mm-hmm. I think is great. Absolutely. And there are women mm-hmm. who just haven't found that yet. What do you think the two reasons behind both of those are? Actually, um, just to, to mention uh, very quickly, there was a quote by uh, sociologist Eric Kleinberg in your book, uh, who mm-hmm. wrote a book called Going Solo. And he said, mm-hmm. living alone is one way to get a kind of restorative solitude, a solitude that can be productive because your home can be an oasis from the constant chatter and overwhelming stimulation of the digital urban existence. And single women may be marginalized or stigmatized, even if they're happy about being single. So th- this is this, again, is a whole other podcast that I'd love to do. But I often tell my husband, <laughs> he has his father is about 80, he's 86 now. And he has a girlfriend that he's had for a long time. And they live about two blocks away. And he he has kept she lives in this gorgeous apartment. And he's kept his own apartment. And he goes back to his apartment three days a week. And I joke every single time he talks about it with my husband. I'm like, can I have my own apartment? <laughs> be like such a nice mom and wife. If I could go to my own apartment three days a week. <laughs> yeah, I mean, It's a great setup. Um, but anyway, totally. so, so going back to that, what are the reasons that women have chosen not to have children for whatever reason? Um, and what are the reasons women our age maybe haven't found love or children. Yeah. So some of the women in the book didn't have kids because like they just didn't want them for whatever reason. Maybe they don't like children or they, you know, just were never, never felt particularly maternal or, or, you know, didn't, didn't want a partner or did want a partner, but they just wanted to have like, you know, hot marriage and not have kids around. So that's one category. But then I did talk to a lot of women who thought that they would eventually find somebody to spend their life with, or that they would eventually have kids and then just haven't. And a lot of the time it was because they made the very sensible decision to like wait until they were in a stable job or a stable relationship or something like that to have kids, or they wanted to wait until they really knew themselves and they dated and they had fun and then they could sort of settle down. And that when they got ready for those things, those things were suddenly very hard to find. And that was a story I heard over and over again, that they were like, okay, I want to, I'm ready to get married now at 35 or whatever it was. And then all the men their age were dating down, right? They were dating like 25 year olds and, you know, or they decided to start trying to get pregnant and then they couldn't get pregnant. So that was a story I heard a lot. And there's a particular pain in that, that I think doesn't get talked about enough. So I think, yeah, if you do have a show about it, I think it could help a lot of people. Um, this, this one psychologist I spoke with calls it ambiguous loss, this feeling of like uncertainty, right? Like you could meet your partner today in the grocery store, or you could never find anybody. And that that unknowing is really hard for the human brain to, to, to wrap around because we like to know, and we can even deal with pain and suffering if we know what it is, like somebody dies, we can mourn, we can get past it. But not knowing if you're ever going to find somebody is a particular kind of torture. Yeah, uncertainty. That's it's, it's definitely torture. I, I also, you know, I feel like we have to remove this stigma for women that just all across the world, by the way, women who just don't want to have kids and get married. There's nothing wrong with that. And I, I really understand totally. it. I mean, I, I got married very young. I had my kids very young. And um, in my head, kids, if you ever listen to this, I love you so much. And I'm so <laughs> happy that you're on the planet. And I would never change it for anything in the world. But when I was younger, I wanted a huge career. I wanted to travel the world. And I had zero interest in getting married. And somehow... I got married at 25 <laughs> and, mm-hmm. you know, had my first at 30. Part of that was that there was this pressure and there was this expectation from our parents' generation that we have kids and get married. Without a doubt, I think Gen Z and the millennial generation will be fighting this. I, I think you'll see a lot less marriage. I think you'll see a lot less kids. Uh, I just mm-hmm. think that there's going to be more more women who are, you know, choosing a career or choosing 
uh, you know, solitude over having mm-hmm. children, whether that's good or bad, I think it's going to happen. And I think that we fell into some pressure with that. I do think the stigma needs to to go away. And then for women who are single and want marriage and want children, I have, I have, have friends in that area and people constantly make them feel like they're a failure because of that. And, and that, that has to end too. Yeah. Why does it matter to everybody else? Why do we know what, what one particular woman does? It just, it, it does seem very old fashioned to get involved in other people's lives in that way. Do you think it's us that's, that's putting that on them? Or do you think it's our parents' generation that's putting that on them? I wonder, I don't really know. I mean, I do think that there has been this like traceable media campaign to pit women who have kids against women who don't have kids, like all that mommy wars stuff. If you, I can watch some documentary about it where it's, it was basically just all these fake news articles about like, uh, you know, just fake. It was all fake. And it really was designed to make it seem as though the women of America were had taken to the streets with, you know, with weapons to like battle each other, whether they had families or not. And it's just, um, it was diabolical. That's crazy. Do you remember years ago, there was an article, uh, in the times and it became very widespread at the time. This is, this is way before I had kids. It was a woman who said she came on and she wrote a book about it. And she said, my husband is my, is my first priority, not my kids. And I think it was, I let Waldman. Yes, it was. Yes, yes, exactly. She got a ton of backlash on that. I think pre kids, I didn't understand what she was saying. And, and now that I'm a mother and I've been married a long time, I, you know, there's a part of me that understands what she was saying, you know, cause your kids grow and they leave and you're, you're left with your partner. And I think it's, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's important to nurture your marriage and to, to, you know, do the best you can. Now, all of us have lots of ups and downs in marriage, especially when the longer you're married, but that's, in, I, I kind of want to look back on that now. What was her name? Isla? Islet Waldman. Well, She's, Isla Waldman. um, I let Waldman. Yeah. She has this, that new book out or newish, um, from a couple of years ago, I guess about microdosing LSD. Oh, um, that was her most <laughs> recent one. Wow. <laughs> She's just all over yeah. the place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think, it, I think she attracted a, like too much hate. And I think it came from just her having like a smoking hot husband, right. who's the novelist Michael Shabon. And then people were just like, we get it. Your husband's hot. <laughs> right. Um, but I, but I agree with you that it was a perfectly reasonable thing to say. And, um, and, you know, a valuable voice in the conversation. Well, and speaking of marriage, you, you mentioned that there are Gen X women have higher expectations of marriage. They, you know, we want our partner to be our best friend and our soulmate and the sex should be great, which, you know, of course that all doesn't happen. And then we're mm-hmm. disappointed about that. And I also think, I do think our generation, and my mom says this all the time. And I said, well, mom, you know what, the, the, that, that our generation is quick to divorce. And I, and I have divorced parents. And so she feels very strongly about it. And I said, listen, there are two sides to this. I think that women today know that if they're in a very unhappy situation that they don't have to stay. Whereas the boomer generation for the most part stayed, whether they were happy or not, because they felt that they owed it to their children. At the same time, I do think some of our generation is very quick to divorce the minute things aren't exactly the way they thought they were going to be. I'm just curious, what, what do you what do you think about that? Or what have you heard from your interviews? Yeah, well, it's funny because I talk about that a lot in that book, Wedding Tests on the Brigham, where uh, it's, you I'm know, the expectations and have you come back. Oh, yeah, I wonder <laughs> if you like it, but where there were the expectations are so high. And I think, you know, going back to your point about infidelity to the expectation that nobody that you're with will ever look at another person is maybe not super realistic. And that, and that this zero tolerance for, for any transgression of any kind is part of what leads to this rampant divorce, you know, and, and I think that, you know, staying married for a long time is going to involve, like you said, just problems like real problems and really bad times and rough patches in a, even in a perfect marriage, like that is a perfect marriage. That's a good marriage. There's no such thing as a marriage that lasts for 50 years with, with no, with nothing. I think it's good to talk about that. And just to acknowledge that, because I do think there's a lot of agony that the couples go through because they think everybody else has it figured out. And maybe social media plays a part in that where you just look out and 
the whole landscape seems to be filled with people who know what they're doing. And that can be very alienating. Which is so funny because I know like half the people on social media who, who post these like pictures or the, these, these long posts to their husbands. I'm like, I know it's really <laughs> happening. This is like full of shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The social media and the Christmas, the Christmas letters. Oh, yeah. Get me. oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I do think from my own experience, I think there was a point where maybe I went through like a midlife crisis that was kind of early and you know, was quick to be like, I want a divorce. And my husband thankfully was like, what, what, like we're, we're just going through, like, let's, let's talk this out. I think you're being a little rash about this. And, you know, looking back, I'm, I'm so grateful that I had him of sound mind at that point. Mm-hmm, um, Cause mm-hmm. I think it was something that I was going through personally. And, you know, I'm not here to say that you should work it out, especially people who are in situations which really can't be worked out if it's abusive or right. mental illness totally. or, you know, um, addiction. But, but, uh, I do think that you can work things out. And I think that as you, as your kids age, your lives change and your, your bond changes in different ways. We laugh because when we look at couples who are like newly married, walking hand in hand or talking about their wedding plans, we're like, Oh, they're so bright eyed and full of hope. That's so cute. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that was where um, my, that book about marriage I wrote came from was I wrote a modern love column uh, where I, we were, we'd been married like 12 years, I guess. And we were going to our friends' weddings and they were delivering these vows along the lines of, I will never let you down. I will always be your best friend. This is going to be so beautiful and magical every second of every day. <laughs> and we, and we, at the time we're having a rather rough patch and fighting all the time. We're like, yeah, it's going to be awesome. You're going to have the <laughs> best time. So the modern love column was sort of a, basically about how, yes, marriage, I really do believe in marriage. I think it's actually just profound and very important and wonderful, but it has nothing to do with the, the, the idea of marriage that appears in those starry eyed wedding vows. Right. It's funny. I used to say, um, and I'd say this to my husband and he'd be like, thanks, honey. I'm like, I don't really get marriage. Like why, why do we have to, I mean, can't we just hang out and like <laughs> be together, but like the whole marriage thing. I, like I just went through this very like hippie moment where I was, mm-hmm. I just like didn't understand that, it, it, that that could stem from being a child of divorce. But, um, uh, it, it is funny. I, I, and, and now, now that my kids are a little bit older and, and, and he's, you know, we're really a team in so many ways. Mm-hmm. And I truly do love being with him uh, more than a lot of people, you know, it's, it, it's changing and it's in, in, a, in a very positive way. And so I think that my advice to other women would be if you can work through the difficult times somehow with therapy or whatever you can do, if you have that solid bond to begin with, you know, you can get to a place where um, eventually, you know, you're happy. It's hard with little kids. It's, it's very, very, very hard. Yeah. That, those were the hardest no years marriage wise for me. Totally. Yeah. Lastly, on on today, I just wanted to ask you. So, my podcast is all about changing our narrative at at our age, so that we can live a more positive life, so that we can make this next chapter happy and do the work now, so that we can feel like we can move on and and just kind of live in more harmony than we have at other times of our life. Again, not to say that it's going to be perfect, but. From your research of this book, you know, what have, what have you learned in that area and what advice would you give about the future and kind of changing our narrative to a more positive one? Because there are a lot of women who really uh, are dreading midlife. And and that's one of the reasons I wanted to, to, to come on here and make sure that women are trying to see the positive side of things. I really do think that so much of whether we are satisfied and happy at this stage of life has to do with, with how we're framing the narrative around our experience. So I, when I teach memoir classes, because I, um, I've done that various times and I really like it. And you have to figure out how to tell the story of your life, where you give some things more weight than others and where you have to cut out a lot of characters and figure out who are the most important ones and what the scenes are that are the most vital and where your story starts and what what the middle is and where it stops. And like, I think when you do that, when you create this frame around it, it gives a a lot of 
power. So you can tell the story in a million different ways. And if you tell the story in a way that the whole world's against you and you're a failure and you had so much promise and what, look what happened and you should have done this and that, like that is one way to tell the story that might result in being extremely unhappy. Um, but I think there are other ways to tell the story. You can say you had this hard road to hoe and you didn't have a lot of support, but look at all you were able to do anyway. And you can, you can find the characters in your life who really helped you and, and make those the main characters as opposed to the ones who, who beat you down. And, uh, and I think that there's, there's just huge power in that. That's so nice. And don't you love, you learn, you, uh, you're my age, I think you said you're, well, you're 44. You told yes. me off on right. I, I love this age. I, I never thought what I cried on my 40th birthday and ate a bag of Cheetos and a bottle of wine. I'm <laughs> so unhappy. Mm. And mm-hmm. I, I just, I'm actually excited about the years to come. I, I really enjoy my forties. So yeah. Yeah. And me it, too. I mean, I'm, I'm, this is good. I, I'm, I'm, you know, also with the kids older, it's like a huge a new level of yes. freedom. I don't need babysitters anymore. That's like amazing. I, mm-hmm. you know, to go. Oh my god! I can't tell you for the for any of you that have younger kids. The minute you stop having babysitters, your life is so different. It's just, it's so wonderful to have that spontaneity. My husband will say like, "Let's go grab dinner, okay?" And the kids love when we leave. Like, bye. <laughs> so they'll ask us, "Don't you want to go to dinner this week? <laughs> Do you want to leave us alone for a weekend?" No, not yet. <laughs> Nice. Anyway, Ada, thank you so much for coming on. I, I want to, I would love to read your first book and maybe we could have you back on to talk about that as well. If you're interested in doing that. Sounds great. Thanks and, so much for having me. Yeah, it's get, great what you're doing. get on Clubhouse. Cause I want to do a show with you. I think you would be so perfect on there. And I think that if you reach out to somebody, you know, followers, your Facebook, your friends, somebody will have an invite, but you'll also you'll find it as a woman, you'll just find so many great rooms to kind of come in and chat on or listen in on. That's great. Well, thank you so much. You're welcome. And thank you everybody for listening. And until next time. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to give yourself permission and know that you are not alone. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. Reviews are always appreciated. And you can reach me by email at it's not a crisis at Gmail, Instagram, it's not a crisis podcast, and please join our Facebook group as well. Until next time, just remember, it's not a crisis. The Hispanic community is the nation's largest racial and ethnic minority. It's time health research included your voice. That's why the All of Us research program exists. If you participate in All of Us, not only would you help your community, you can also receive your free genetic ancestry trait results. With this information and more, researchers may be able to conduct a variety of studies about health and diseases that affect the Hispanic community. Visit joinallofus.org slash your health to contribute. Again, joinallofus.org slash your health.